0: Xbox President Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com TechSF.
1: It's been a wild ride for investors in the U.S. stock market these past couple months. First, it plummeted in February over fears of rising interest rates. Then, President Trump gave investors even more heartburn by threatening China with a trade war and attacking Amazon over its deal with the Postal Service. Yet, for all the chaos on Wall Street, Main Street seems to be doing fine. So, is the stock market signaling trouble for the economy, or will this storm blow over? Welcome to Benchmark. I'm Scott Landman, economics editor with Bloomberg News in Washington. And I'm Daniel Moss, economics editor and writer at Bloomberg View in New York. So, Dan, how many times have you been in this situation? You're talking with a new acquaintance at a cocktail party. You tell them that you write about the economy, and the first questions they ask
2: are, so what's going on with the market lately, and what should I do with my money? Well, the first part happens a lot, I generally quickly respond by saying, which market do you mean? Do you mean the stock market? They give me a blank look. I say, well, you could have been talking about bonds or FX. The mere fact that the market is shorthand for stocks actually says a lot.
1: And it's usually that they think that the market is the economy, that the stock market is basically the economy. If you cover the economy,
2: well, you must be covering the stock market, right, Dan? Yes, to break it down – and then describe how the market on a day to day basis, let alone an hourly basis, does not necessarily reflect the broader macro economy. Well, by that time, eyes that were rolling have well and truly rolled out the cocktail party.
1: <laughs> well, anyway, there are some ways that the stock market is the economy, there's some ways that it's not. And today we're going to talk about that a little as these two worlds collide on Benchmark. Let's bring in our guest. Jim Paulson is chief investment strategist at the Luthold Group, an independent financial research firm in Minneapolis. He also previously worked for 20 years at Wells Capital Management, part of Wells Fargo, and is a trained economist. Jim, thanks for joining us on Benchmark.
3: Oh, thanks for having me, Scott.
1: Jim, what sets you apart from a lot of people who talk about the market's ups and downs is that you come to it with an economics background. You have a doctorate in economics. How does this training in this field color your approach to analysis and commentary on the stock market?
3: Well, I think it always has probably more of a you know, a 10,000 or 20,000 feet view more times than not than a, a bottom-up company view probably always have had that tilt. But I would say a couple of the the biggest things is an appreciation of the workings of capitalism not only driving the economy but also the markets and 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 truly more maybe an appreciation for its individuals that make it home and and it's truly greed and fear and animal spirits or the lack thereof and and you could say those terms, but in reality, in the management of money they often become uh, extremely important. We can get lost in all the minutiae of, of uh, Fed meetings or, or quantitative formulas for this or that. But at the end of the day, it really, the most important thing a lot of the time is, where's the psyche of the players? Are they more tilted at the moment towards fear and that's affecting how they're behaving, both economically and in the markets? Or are they more fearful of missing out or driven more by greed. And uh, I think that's a, something you get after studying economics, a lot of things. But I think one thing is left in me and it has maybe been reinforced in my day-to-day experiences is it really is about the human element. We try to make economics a science, but at the end of the day, it's still an art.
2: You're also not in New York, or another major financial center. You're in Minneapolis, not a knock on Minneapolis. It does give you a different perspective. I also wonder whether your studies at Iowa State, as opposed to say Harvard, Princeton, Stanford, give you some special insight as well.
3: You know, I'm not sure because I never had the alternative experience, I guess, to uh, directly compare the two. I think at the end of the day, it's probably both an advantage and a detriment to grow up and be educated in the Middle West as opposed to the East Coast. I think there's good and bad about it. If there is one thing that I guess, I think I guess a couple things with technology, I'm fairly, I'm as connected as anyone that sits right in Manhattan every day. I speak as much to people in New York or Boston or LA that I do here in in the Midwest. So, I, and there certainly isn't a lack of ability to look at things as much as any, anyone else anywhere else. But I I do think what it does more than anything is give you a different track to managing money. You have maybe a high proportion of the individuals involved in this industry that follow a very similar track. And to some extent, coming from a completely different track to get where we are maybe brings a completely different perspective to how you do things rather than just learning what everyone else did and, and copying it along the way. And I think there's some truth in that. But as I say, that can be a great thing. Creativity and a unique path can be very profitable, but it can also sometimes run you right off a cliff when you're doing it your own way, so to speak. So again, it's it's an advantage and a detriment, but I do think maybe the different path to get what we all do every day certainly makes me look at things differently.
1: Whenever we have these kinds of big swings in the stock market, some people come out and say, you know, the stock market is not the economy; the economy is just fine. But it's really a bit more complicated than that, right? Can you explain?
3: Well, I, I've always been of the been of the view that there's always been widespread contention between Main Street and Wall Street. It's a common media darling to write about that conflict, and I think it exists because over time, I believe both Main and Wall do just fine over over time. They just rarely do fine together. It is typically the case that when it's really uh, awful, oftentimes on Main Street, it's great on Wall. And when it gets good on Main, it often gets more difficult on Wall Street. For example, if you go back to 1950, the absolute best returns on Wall Street have come when the unemployment rate has been in the highest quartile over the post-war history. I think returns are as much as 15% per annum when the unemployment rates in the upper quartile. And the worst returns on, in the stock market are when you have the lowest quartile unemployment rates. There is a truism that Wall Street likes slack on me. Slack on me allows you to grow the economy without any negative consequence for the financial assets.
2: Meaning interest rates
3: can be low. That's right. Meaning growth without any cause. You don't Raise cost, you don't increase inflation, which challenge valuations. You don't have any need to raise rates. But once once you reach full employment, once uh, you get to a positive output gap, then growth has negative connotations as well as positive ones for both stocks and bonds. So, at any given moment, what often seems like only one is participating. I mean, in 2009, when the stock market was roaring in the second half of the year, we had some of the highest unemployment rates post-war history, and there was widespread impression for years in the early in this recovery that only Wall Street was really benefiting, no one on Main was. Whereas today, Main Street looks about as good as it ever has. We've got full employment, regular job creation, good income growth, good profit growth, high confidence levels, and and yet Wall Street has been struggling more of late with the need to reset interest rates higher, with lowering price earnings multiples, with dealing with higher inflation risk, with dealing with a tightening Federal Reserve. And I don't think that's uncommon at all. So over time, they're both going to benefit from GDP going higher, but often it's not at the same time.
2: Well, if things are so great on Main Street, Jim, this didn't just happen overnight. How do you reconcile that with this support for populism and for draining the swamp and breaking Washington? How do you reconcile dissatisfaction with the status quo when status quo was treating people pretty good late 2016?
3: Well, but I think it wasn't long before that. You know, Really, confidence levels among consumers, among businesses, among investors really remained average or below average by post-war standards really until after the election in 2016. And if you look at real median incomes until really 2015 at the earliest, maybe even 2016, real median incomes, the, that is the income of the, of main street, if you will, were falling during most years of this recovery. So I would argue that it really wasn't until the last couple years that Main Street finally started to pick up. You go back prior to the election, I'm not sure the exact number, but you know we had an unemployment rate that was still probably close to 6%. We had sort of hit-and-miss job reports and low confidence. And My point is I don't, I don't necessarily believe at all that the election of President Donald Trump led to everything good on Maine. I think Maine was by coincidence almost finally starting to pick up and return to some semblance of post-war normal just prior to the election. And I think there was great dissatisfaction with what went down. The the idea of an economy growing at a ridiculously slow 2% sort of real stall speed growth rate, with the inability to really lower the effective unemployment rate, leaving very low confidence amongst most private players, and really high degrees of fear that we were just this close to the second coming of the Great Depression. I think there was dissatisfaction in that. One of the criticisms that I have of the way we handled the 08 crisis was I felt like every leader in this country put all their energies into uh, treating fundamentals, uh, restoring an income flow, improving a balance sheet, but they lost focus of what is equally or maybe more important, and that is treating confidence. And indeed, in my book, they destroyed confidence. The president, Treasury uh, head the Federal Reserve Chairman uh, and f- public officials in Government chronically and constantly went to the microphone and s- told the American public, You better be prepared because we 're this close to the second coming of the great depression their actions the bizarre actions of doing things like cash for clunkers and tarp on a major Way, giving banks that didn't even need capital, capital they were forced to take, could practicing quantitative easing, a never before seen approach. All of these screamed that our leaders were scared to death and they were doing frantically anything they could to save the world. And I think it put private players, businesses, consumers, investors into the fetal position and chronically led to a very poor growing economy. I think this finally broke just prior to Trump getting elected, in part because the rest of the world adopted an easing policy consistent across the globe, and the whole global economy synchronized, in part because it had been long enough that fear finally started to erode. But my point was, I think it was, uh, people were tired of the fear-based and sort of disappointing outsized recovery, and I think that led to a change at the highest level of leadership in the country.
0: OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF.
1: So now we do have a fair amount of confidence back on Main Street. The unemployment rate is at the lowest since 2000. You know, most measures of the economy show that things are in pretty good shape. And yet we've been having these pretty crazy swings in the stock market. And, you know, what we want to know is what does that say about the direction of Main Street? You were talking earlier about how they don't necessarily move in sync with each other. Is this change in the behavior on Wall Street uh, something that tells us about the future coming for Main Street?
3: Well, ultimately what hurts Wall will hurt Main. And Wall is dealing with There was a great gig on Wall for quite a while. You could grow the economy and never have any inflation or cost increases in your business or never have to raise rates. And if that's the case, you you can keep pushing the valuation of the stock market higher and higher. There's nothing to bring it down. But suddenly, when the world recovery synchronized and everyone started growing together, and this came at a time when the U.S. had returned to full employment, it now has a negative fallout in the form of rising cost and rising inflation, which we're definitely seeing. And that is necessitating the need for the Fed to reset short rates and for bond vigilantes to reset longer yields. And that is necessitating that we lower the valuation of stocks as well. This here to me, is about the stock and bond markets both adjusting to a new character in the economy. We are no longer in a 2% growing economy with 2% inflation and 2% yields. We're probably in a two and a half growing economy, maybe two and three quarters, it's synchronized with the globe and inflation's probably moving to three, wages are moving to three and a half and that means the 10 year yield is probably headed to three and a half as well. And that necessitates that you can't trade the stock market over 20 times earnings anymore. You're probably gonna have to bring it down into the teens, maybe 17 times earnings to find a sustainable valuation that can withstand an economy with 3% inflation. So I think this is an adjustment for financial assets to the new reality. And we might be able to do that successfully and the economy and the stock market can continue on. Or if inflation and interest rate pressures prove to be more advanced and they have to both move higher then maybe it could be the beginning of the end for both the bull market and the recovery.
2: Jim, as flawed as this economic expansion has been, it's been running for a while now. It's on track to become the longest ever. Are you seeing any signs in your daily interactions that things are starting to wane, things might be coming off the boil, that the end could be in sight?
3: Yeah. Well, this is a very calendar, as you say, it's it's a calendar old recovery, and it's going to be the oldest soon. But it's, in many ways, character young. You know, there's just it was such an odd recovery growing so slowly, never generating any real animalistic behaviors. No one really, we didn't have any major lending or borrowing cycle. We've never had a massive nationwide housing cycle. We never had a major capital spending cycle. We've yet to have a significant tightening by policy officials we have just started a period of excessive or or strong confidence in many ways the economy to me you know by character standards you know might be in year 3 or 4 rather than in year 9 the problem i see is the financial markets look a lot older than the recovery does i don't see to me what is the primary cause of recession is confidence too much confidence confidence leads you and me to undertake overly aggressive risky out over our skis types of behaviors whether that be in our economics or whether it be in the markets or our own financials and it is those excesses then that must be purged with the recession those are hard to find today because we've never had enough confidence in this recovery to do stupid things um We might be starting that process, but we're just probably starting. The problem I have, and what keeps me awake at night when I think about this recovery, is that this recovery has been so odd from the get-go. It is truly an outlier recovery of the post-war era. It grew slower than any other by a wide margin. It did it without virtually no productivity whatsoever no debt usage. I could go on and on. We certainly uh, have totally altered the financial industry's approach from what it used to be. That if we had such an odd recovery, could we have an odd thing that causes the next recession? That is, could the traditional things that you and I monitor for recession risk not really be worthwhile in this recovery? Maybe it's something entirely different that's going to bring this next recession, if only because the recovery has been so so odd and unconventional. I don't know what to do with that, but it scares me. If a surprising recession came out of left field tomorrow, would it really be that surprising, given how surprising and odd this whole recovery has been?
1: Speaking of which, Jim, two things come to mind when you talk about this. We've had a fiscal stimulus in the form of a major tax cut law as well as a budget law passed by congress that have the effect of effectively boosting spending boosting stimulus in the economy at a time when the economy is relatively strong on top of that we're in the middle of all sorts of trade threats and counter threats over tariffs 50 billion here 100 billion here 100 billion there maybe you start talking about real money How much do those kinds of policy issues loom in your mind when you think about these kinds of recession risks that might not normally be on the radar?
3: The first one, quite a bit. The second one, not much. In other words, uh, I thought passing a major fiscal stimulative package this late in an economic recovery that had already returned to full employment, that was already dealing with rising cost pressures to some degree and that was already facing a Fed that was starting to tighten. It was just ridiculous. I I just think it's indefensible beyond anything but politics. It makes no sense to bring a huge stimulative package to an economy which really doesn't need stimulus. And indeed, one policy leg, the Fed, is already trying to reduce it. To me, if it is successful in the sense of actually stimulating, all it will do will hasten the coming of the next recession because it will speed up inflation and cost push, and it will speed up the need for the Fed and bond vigilantes to tighten, and it will speed up the inversion of the yield curve and ultimately bring the next recession quicker. That one, uh, I, I don't understand. I'm less worried about the trade issues. Um, sure, I mean, if you take trade wars to limit, it's a horrible thing. We, we've The experience of that we've certainly seen historically. Um, but I think the odds of that are low. And I concur that for the last 25, 30 years, we allowed all these little no-name countries around the world to cheat and pillar as it regards international economic rules because we wanted them to learn about capitalism and get uh, their economies up and running on a fully self-functioning capitalist way. And so we allowed them to set their currencies at ridiculously low levels. We allowed them to treat their employees like slaves with no cost of labor, in essence. We allowed them to pollute their riverbeds and, and their air without any need to take account of those externalities. And then uh, we allow them to very unfairly compete with us and other developed countries. That was fine because we did a wonderful thing. We built a brand-new economic world that didn't exist 30 years ago that has young demographics and a lot lot faster growth rate profile than us old fogies in the developed world will have. We need them in the future to subsidize our our slower growth rate going forward. If it took 30 years to build them out, it's worth it. But it's time now to... Do a bait and switch on these little new name emerging economies and say, look, that's great now, but now it's time to play by fair rules. And we need to everyone uh, play by the same rules across the globe. And we need to start enforcing it. I'm not sure that the Trump approach is the best approach, the blunt force in your face approach. But you know what? It's going to have to be done one way or the other over the next 10 to 20 years, because ultimately for the world to work economically, we need for the developed world, slower growing, demographically challenged economies to, to become trade surplus countries and for the fast growing emerging demographically charged countries to become trade deficit countries. And ultimately, that's going to require fair rules for trade. So I think in some regard, as risky as it is in the short term, it's maybe a very good result longer term.
2: Jim, what happens when some of those little no-name countries actually have to confront demographic challenges of their own.
3: Well, and that will certainly occur. I mean, the the poster child for the emerging story, China, has worse demographics than, than most of the developed world. And they're going to face it. They have been able to grow at the pace they've grown, primarily because they had effective, effectively, they had so many unemployed Resources or underutilized resources that they could grow very rapidly with the existing population base. Once those are employed, their underlying demographic situation, population growth, is really miserable. So I think they're going to fall out of a leadership role in the economic story. I don't think they're going to crash and burn, but I don't think they're going to be the leader. I think that's going to be taken up by other countries within the emerging world that have better underlying demographics that they can fall back to for sustainable growth. But I do think that the developed world, power in the world goes where economics is and and ultimately all forms of power, whether that be political or military or anything else, follows where economics power goes. And, and the U.S. and the developed world is losing that slowly. And it's going to be picked up more by emerging world countries over the next 50 years. And I don't think that's going to be reversed. And rather than fight it, I think we need to embrace it and make sure that we still have a voice at the table, uh, both politically as well as just economically um, in in that sort of new world order.
1: Well, Jim, I don't think we were planning to get into one of our discussions of global demographics and economics on this episode, but I'm glad we were able to have it. So thank you so much for joining us today.
3: You bet. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it.
1: benchmark will be back next week until then you can find us on the bloomberg terminal bloomberg.com our bloomberg app and podcast destinations such as apple podcasts spotify or wherever you listen please also take the time to review the show on itunes when people post reviews it helps others discover the podcast you can also check us out on twitter follow me at, at scott landman dan you're at moss underscore eco and Jim's firm is at, at L-E-U-T-H-O-L-D Group. Benchmark is produced by Topher Forges. The head of Bloomberg Podcast is Francesca Levy. Thanks for listening. See you next time.
0: From Silicon Valley to Wall Street,